Well, good morning. Guys, whenever pastor is out of town, it, it is an opportunity um, for someone else to step in and to share God's word with us together as his people. And whenever that opportunity comes, it can, in some sense, be a little bit of a weight when that, that opportunity comes my way of, okay, will I have a word to share, and will I be prepared to share it? Is my heart even ready for that? And then there's also, okay, Lord, well then, if I step forward and take this invitation and this opportunity, speak to me. And it makes me, one, appreciate our pastor, and two, it pushes me to this reliance upon God. And so I kind of feel that this morning as we gather. So let me go ahead and pray, and we'll talk with the Lord together before we begin. Father, thank you. Um, Thank you that there's more than a thousand tongues that sing. And indeed, it would be glorious, Lord, for us, Lord, at the end of time, to gather with your full congregation and to praise your name face to face. What a day that that will be and that Christ has won for us to have the expectation of that day. Lord, thank you. Lord, right now we sit in the middle. We sit in the middle of this life on earth, Lord waiting for your coming. And as we await your coming, Lord, we need to continue to hear from you. Would you speak to us? Would you speak to me? And Lord, as you speak to us and speak through me, Lord, I pray that then your spirit would put a guard over my mouth, and Lord, that your spirit would speak with us, your people, the things that you are saying to us specifically, as well as generally. Be glorified, Lord, always, in everything we do and in everything that we say. And all God's people said, Amen. Psalm 22 has been on my mind for a little while. Um, in, the, in our teen class, which we have every Sunday morning, we've been walking through the Psalms. And our focus has been this idea of meditating, meditating on God's Word. I find the Psalms to be so instructive for our meditation. Um, I find the Psalms to be so helpful to speak to all these different moments that we may meditate in, moments of joy and moments of sorrow. Moments of contemplation and all kinds of moments, the myriad of of, uh, feelings, emotions, and challenges and opportunities that we experience. And the Psalms speak greatly to a lot of them. They also speak prophetically. So we have arrived at Psalm 22. And last week we took some time to walk through that together as a teen class. And I'll get to some of the things that we talked about there. But I first want to not forget, as we meditate on the Word of God, that it will speak to us personally. And this psalm, Psalm 22, comes out of a very personal experience. There's a place that our minds probably as New Testament believers go, and we'll get there when we look at the psalm and we read the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But I don't want to jump 1,000 years from David to another person, the son of David. I want to start with David. So my first point is the personal crisis. There's a personal crisis here that shows up when David writes these words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We don't know what specific circumstance of David's life he's writing this from. There are some psalms where we do know. We look at Psalm 51, and that comes out of David with his sin, with Bathsheba, and then he's 
repenting. We have other songs where he writes as he's running from Saul. There are different songs where he specifically names the experience that he's in, and this is where his cry is coming from. But this one, we don't get that context. But when you think about David and these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They could apply to so many different points in David's life, can't they? Think about David as a young man when Samuel, the prophet, comes and visits um, his father's house, and all of his brothers are called up, one by one, as Samuel's looking for who's going to be the next king, and God has sent him, right? And so Samuel's going, okay, is this the one guy? Because he looks really good. He looks ready to be the king. And God goes, don't look on the outside. I'm looking on the inside. But it's interesting that David was passed over. There's a bit of, he's kind of forgotten and neglected, and there can be a sense of, even from early on, his life may have been one where he was kind of pushed to the side. And you see that also reflected when, later on, his brothers are in the army, and they are facing Goliath, and they're wondering, what do they do? And David's just sent to bring some food. And David comes, and he brings the food, and, his, and as he's bringing the food, then he hears and he sees Goliath come up and challenge the people of Israel, and he gives this challenge that nobody's ready to respond to. And David goes, isn't somebody going to do something about this? And his brother turns to him and he says, I know why you're here. You just want to watch all that's going on. And you, he presents this slight against David. He dismisses his younger brother. It seems like for David, even from the earlier years, there is this sense of being cast aside as the youngest brother. And then, as he gets this anointing to be king, he doesn't receive the crown. Saul is king, and he knows what God has prophesied for him through the prophet Samuel that he will be king, but then Saul turns on him, right? And so Saul begins to pursue him. David, who has done pretty much the most for the kingdom of Israel at that point, he is the man being pursued out of the kingdom of Israel, and there's these moments where he has to indeed leave his own home, and not only leave his own home, but actually find shelter for his own family, his parents, because he's being pursued, and he has no home. For David, these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They're very, very true, not just of any specific moment in his life, but that could, cry could have come from his life at any point. You look at him when he still is not king, but he has his band of men, and they leave their home, and their wives and their stuff is all left behind while they're going off and fighting elsewhere, and they come back and find their wives and their stuff taken. This is at Ziklag, right? And David is so distraught, and not only distraught because he's lost his wife and he's lost his stuff, but all these men have lost, and they're ready to stone him. They're ready to kill him. And David in that moment has to turn and go, God, do I go and pursue? He has to encourage his own heart in the Lord. There is this sense where he could say, God, why have you forsaken me? You've told me that I will be king, and yet every experience tells me right now that's in danger. And not only is that dream of being king in danger, but my own life is in danger. Why have you forsaken me? It's a pattern in David's life. And even after he's king, when he's ready to bring in the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem, and as he's bringing it back in, it's been gone for years, and he's bringing it back in incorrectly, a man dies. And David has to cut short 
this journey of the Ark of the Covenant back to where it should be. And this cry could go up, God, why have you forsaken us? Why can't we have your presence, the symbol of your presence, the Ark of the Covenant, where it ought to be? Why have you on this day of celebration turned it from a celebration to a moment of grief? Why have you forsaken me? And you hear him write in a different psalm, I believe, how long until I can have God with me, the Ark of the Covenant. This longing for something that he's not experiencing. My God, why have you forsaken me? Even later, after the Ark of the Covenant is with God's people in the city, later on in his life, he has this sin with Bathsheba, and it's from this sin that he then begets a child, and he kills Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And then God pronounces judgment, and his baby from that situation is killed. He can know the reason that God has in that moment not given him what he asked for, the life of his child to be preserved, that it would be on him that God would exercise his punishment and not that the child would have to suffer. My God, why have you forsaken me? This cry could come forth. Or even later in David's life, where his own son, Absalom, in anger and whatever bitterness that Absalom may have, turns on his father and leads this rebellion and indeed captures the city of Jerusalem from his father, turns some of his father's men against him. And David has to run barefoot and weeping from his own city. My God, why have you forsaken me? We don't know at what moment that David would have written these words, but indeed, David experienced this kind of pain many times in his life. And if we're honest, we ourselves experience moments like this. Sometimes they are short. And we thank God when that time of stress and distress is shortened. And sometimes it's prolonged. And it seems to go on and on and it never ends. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And sometimes we can compare our situations with one another and start to maybe minimize, okay, my situation is not as bad as this person's situation, so it doesn't really qualify as kind of this feeling of forsakenness. But there is still, even in our smaller situations, this sense of being forsaken. I'm a principal in a middle school, and I deal with middle schooler problems. And middle schooler problems, they are kind of small, guys. But as a middle schooler, it's everything. I could talk about the children who sat in my office and hung their heads and I don't know why they're not being my friend anymore. And it's a pain. And there's tears. And there's real distress. Am I going to be okay? Do I need to go somewhere else because this pain is unbearable? Their world, for them, in their measure of grief and in their measure of torment is defined by this being and this feeling forsaken. That's a middle schooler. Um, but it's not just a middle schooler, right? For us, as we grow older, we handle bigger and bigger griefs and bigger and bigger challenges. And I thought about what are the things that would make us feel forsaken? Or another word, similar, abandoned. 
right? There's any number of things. I looked up online just things that would bring that feeling. Divorce can bring that feeling of, I've been abandoned. Especially if it's a divorce that I've never asked for. Heartbreak. Maybe you had the expectation of a relationship that did not pan out. Or maybe as a parent, there was a child that there was at one time this joy and rejoicing in this relationship, but then it's a broken heart as the relationship may be severed. Illness can bring this sense of, I am forsaken and abandoned. And my God, why? Rejection. Loss. Maybe somebody has passed. And in the loss of someone, this feeling of being rejected. I have um, some young people that uh, in the recent past, um, one had lost a cousin. And that was a number of years ago, but there's still the grief that doesn't go. And so even though it was years ago, I believe probably about four years ago, for this child, it's very present grief. And a friend of hers said to her, a friend who's also experienced grief and loss of family, said, maybe God did it for a reason. Friend says that it was intended for comfort, to understand like God's picture is bigger. But those words landed in a blow of grief. Loss can make us feel forsaken. Financial stress. Okay, God, how long am I going to sit in this situation where I'm not going to be able to know for certain how I'm going to meet tomorrow's needs? How long will you forsake me? Or the story of a child, and this one's very fresh on my mind, where a mother, under the claws of addiction, birthed a child and walked away, just leaves the hospital. And that child now stands in question of who will be my mother? And why has my mother forsaken me? There's many things that would make us feel abandoned and forsaken. This is a human trial that is common to pretty much all of us. We are born and we face trial and difficulty. These words, and I look at them, just consider them in the reality of our own experience, right? He says... My God, my God. These words are coming from somebody not who has rejected God, not someone who is in question about God, but somebody who is in relationship with God. My God. There's a relationship there, and a relationship of choice. I have chosen God as my God. So I'm speaking to you, my God. He personally identifies with God. And don't we personally identify with him? As we gather in his house today, we are kind of de declaring to one another and to ourselves again, God is my God. And he also says here, my God. He's not just crying to somebody that he's in relationship with, right? but to someone specific. Someone who has specific power. Someone who has specific ability. Someone who has specific strength. My God. Not someone who is impotent and without strength to respond to any need, but someone who specifically can meet any and every need. 
we can expect people to flake on us. I was reading on Twitter, somebody was writing and saying, hey, look, it actually doesn't bother me now when people flake. If you need to flake and say, hey, look, I'm going to cancel these plans. I can't hang out with you now. I understand, and it's okay because, hey, mental health is a real thing where if you need to change your mind from the plans that we made, I understand, I get it. People are going to need to flake on me. And in some sense, it's true where we go, yeah, people, I'm going to expect them to, at times, not fulfill what I expected of them in the relationship that I walk with them in. But God? Should God flake on me? No. My God, why have you forsaken me? And he adds to that the question of why. In some sense, what's the reason? Can you spell it out for me, God? Okay, so I understand. I'm in a human experience right now. But you're my God. Why? What is the reason for this? I would really like to know. And I do, in some sense, question, does he, is he asking this question, expecting an answer, desiring an answer? I mean, I think that there's, in the hum, humanly, we always desire an answer. I would love for God to answer the situations in my life. God, why this thing? Would you tell me? And maybe if you could tell me in a way that would make sense to me, I can walk through this better now. But sometimes God doesn't give me that response that I want. Why? And then he says, why have you forsaken? This is a sense of like, okay, I already am existing in this state of being forsaken. It's already happening. Not, why will you? Maybe I feel like it's coming. But I feel like right now, you have already forsaken me. Forsaken. Abandoned me. Why have you done that? And we might hesitate to add this last word here. But he says, why have you forsaken who? Me. Don't pass over that. I think we read stories about people who've gone through being forsaken. And we go, okay, yeah, I understand that situation. But why me? It can feel a little bit scary to ask that question. God, I've done everything to the best of my knowledge, rightly. So why me? I can think of many other people who, in my eyes, deserve this better. It will be more right for them to have this experience than for me to have this experience. Why have you forsaken me? And we should express caution against that, right? But it is a very real and a very human question. He says, why have you forsaken me? These are questions that we are drawn to ask. And not just as God's people. But I think our world constantly asks this question. Uh, whenever any sort of a trial or occurrence or catastrophe happens where, okay, the world struggles to understand how can there be a God who allows this? God, why? In 2004, there was a tsunami that wiped out over 250,000 people. They call those kinds of things an act of God. And the journalist writes in an article saying, where was God 
If God is God, and this is something that we've heard, if God is God, he is not good. And if God is good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. This question is a question that's asked by everyone. My God, why? It's a human question. So I think it's important as we look at this passage to remember this is a personal crisis. For David, it's a personal crisis for our world and the time in which we sit here. It's a personal crisis for each one of us. God, why? And as we sit in that moment, or you can imagine ourselves sitting with that, I want to now point it to not just the personal crisis, but the prophetic cry. So we read this passage, and as New Testament believers, we know the story. But I want to invite us to not, not jump there, but to get there by way of following the evidence. So last week, um, so I, I'll put it this way. Psalm 22, David is writing specifically of himself, but he's not only writing of himself. There is somebody else that he is talking about, either, whether he's aware of it or not. When he writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's speaking of himself, but not only of himself. He's speaking of someone else. And before we say that someone else's name, I want to invite us, as I invited our teens last week, to play detective. So, we've been, I have two markers here, and I've got to remember which one. Yep, that's not the one. We have two markers here. So, we have Psalm 22. And I want you to take a close look at it, just as I asked our teens to do. Who is this speaking of? What evidence do you see for who else this is speaking of? Take a look through the verses. I'm actually going to pause and give you a moment to look through these verses and follow the clues that God gives us to see who is this talking about. And when you find those clues, take note of the verse number and the phrase that clues you in about who specifically this is talking about. Start at verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is that a clue? To who this is talking about. And then what we'll do, and I'll already, you already know, verse 1 is absolutely a clue. Verse 1. And the phrase that is our clue is that opening phrase. And I'll just write for it. My God, why? And we understand that means the whole phrase, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's a clue for who this is talking about. That's not just David. Are there any other clues? I want to invite you to share what are some of the other verses in this passage that point to someone 1,000 years from David. Does anybody see any verses? 18. And what's the phrase? Verse 18. They part 
my garments. Verse 16. What's the phrase? It pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 7 and 8. What's the phrase? That one's a long phrase. Let him, God, deliver him. Verse 14. What's the phrase? Verse 14, right? My heart is like wax. Well, Paul, sorry, go ahead. We'll take one last one. Bones out of joint in the same verse, verse 14. We'll pause there. As I invited our teens to be detectives, these are just some of the passages that they pulled out. Verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 18, they part my garments among them. Verse 16, they pierce my hands and feet. Verses 7 to 8, let him deliver him. Verse 14, my heart is like wax. My bones are out of joint. And more. And I invited our teens to just think about, you know, those detective shows where you take the board and you put up on the board all the pictures of the evidence that you have, right? And you connect the yarn. And as you connect all the pieces, it starts to indicate what is the case in front of them and open up the case to say, here's all the evidence points to this person. Where does all the evidence point to? Say it again. Jesus Christ. It is compelling and overwhelming. What I want for us to think about, we're going to read from Matthew, and I want to read the passage. And then I want to think about that in light of what was said by David. Because what was said by David, David writes in around the year 1000 BC, which means he's about 1,000 years before Jesus Christ. And he writes specifically and overwhelmingly of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's specific experience. And what a testimony that that is to the truth of Scripture. One of the things that I want for you to note as we turn with me to Matthew 27, we'll read verses 27 to 50. One of the things that I want for us to note is that while David is writing in the year 1000 BC, the method of crucifixion as a method of death, as best we know, was not invented until the 6th century. That's hundreds of years after David writes this. 
that method of death isn't even around. It's invented by the Persians, and then Persians and Assyrians, and then passed from them to the Romans, who do some tweaking to the method of death. And then Christ experiences that even hundreds of years later. So you'll turn with me to Matthew 27, and we'll start off in verse 27, I believe. And almost we don't need to read it, but I think it's helpful to read it again, to be reminded of the truth of the scripture that God has given us. So here he says, starting at verse 27 of Matthew 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. They've surrounded him. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. This is already a fulfilling of this passage in Psalm 22. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when, the, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, piercing his hands and his feet. By the way, um, an interesting thing to note about this. Anytime that scripture makes such a strong statement, prophetically of Jesus Christ, that's a point for skeptics to wrestle with. And indeed, Jewish scholars have tried to wrestle against this. And to say that when it says, he pierced, they pierced my hands and feet, that that's actually a wrong translation of what was said there. That the Jewish text actually says, uh, basically the phrase, like a lion, my hands and feet. Which is interesting. The difference actually between, my understanding, best understanding is, the phrase, like a lion, or they pierced, the difference between that phrasing is literally one mark in the Hebrew text. And that one mark's difference could change the whole phrase. And so some Jewish scholars and some um, secular scholars and some biblical scholars also would look at that and say, well, maybe the correct interpretation is then like a lion, and he's not really saying they pierced my hands and feet. And you can understand why there would be this big attack on that specific phrase. When you think about the fact that crucifixion has not even been invented at the moment that David writes these Hebrew words. Um, one Hebrew scholar actually, though, put it this way. It doesn't make that big of a difference because when you interpret it, like a lion, my hands and feet, the idea is of a crushing of my hands and of my feet. And when you think about Christ being crucified, where they put the nails in his hands and in his feet, there is a crushing that is going on. 
but I look at the scripture and the evidence that I see in front of me seems to tell me that God absolutely meant they pierced my hands and my feet. And he's clearly speaking prophetically. And even if they try to dismantle this one verse, there is so much overwhelming evidence that points to Jesus Christ that you can't take the case apart. It's rock solid. So it says in verse 35, and they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, fulfilling this passage in Psalm 22, 1,000 years later. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. Just imagine that. Sitting down, they watched him there. And remember these phrases, like the bulls of Bashan, they have surrounded me, compassed me round about. Verse 37, and set up over his head, this, his accusation written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, which isn't so much an accusation as it is a mockery, not just of Christ, but of his people. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand, another on the left, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. Remember that phrase from Psalm 22? They shake their heads. Fulfilling Psalm 22. And saying, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself if thou be the son of God. Come down from the cross. Likewise also, the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. Verse 43. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him. Now. Again, fulfilling Psalm 22. This is a, pro this is a prophecy that's not only fulfilled by Christ and what Christ does, but by, by those who do unknowingly actions to fulfill this scripture. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me. And now we know that Christ is not just asking a question as much as he is making a statement that all of Psalm 22 is being fulfilled right there presently and no Jew who knew the word of God could look at that passage and have seen what they had seen and deny with any sense of honesty that Christ fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 22. So this is a prophetic cry. Also, it's interesting to note that Psalm 22 is probably often quoted by Jewish people at the time of the celebration of Purim, which is a celebration of the story of Esther and what God did to save his people in a moment where they were on the brink of being destroyed. And they felt very much forsaken. 
and they didn't know where their salvation would come from. But God had already placed in the royal palace the person who would bring deliverance. And as they celebrate that day, my understanding is that oftentimes they will quote and read Psalm 22. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, why would they read that? Because it's not just a story of people crying out to God and saying, why have you forsaken me? But Psalm 22 is actually, in a fuller sense, also a proclamation. And I want to end with this last point. Psalm 22 is a proclamation of celebration. Continue to look at the, at the psalm. You'll notice that at verse 22, there is a change. There is a switch. There is a shift in the tone. He goes from verse 19 where he says, But be not thou far from me, O Lord. And that's the repeated cry of him. He's saying, God, don't be far from me. His big desire is for God to be near. Oh, my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. And here's the shift, for thou hast heard me. And he says in verse 22, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. That's the switch. There's a shift there. And now we get to a proclamation. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. Now we know who is speaking. It's not just David. It is Jesus Christ speaking, the Son of God. And the Son of God says, I will declare your name unto my brethren. Because, indeed, if we have received the salvation that comes through Christ alone, we are his brethren. We are his family. And he identifies with us. The proclamation is, I will declare your name. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. Out of this psalm comes forth praise. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye the seed of Israel. Verse 22, 24, don't miss this. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. God has not turned his back and said, I don't care about what my daughter is going through. I don't care about what my son is going through. That is not the God of Scripture. Christ says here, He has not despised us. Neither hath He hid His face from Him. Do you feel like God has hidden His face from you? No. That Christ on the cross, at the moment that God turns His face from Him, is reminding us that God has not hid His face from us. Indeed, the Bible even speaks of Christ's own crucifixion and says that God beheld him. And being holding him, he was satisfied because there was a judgment that was due for me and that was due for you that he took out on Christ. And in beholding that, he was satisfied. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. God is beholding us. He says, but when he cried unto him, he heard. He heard. There is a proclamation. And so from that, the celebration, my praise, my praise shall be of thee. Where? In the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. And think about this prophetically also in the sense that we are waiting for a day 
in which there will be a great congregation at the throne of God that will praise him. And that congregation will gather and indeed will only be able to, be, to gather because of what Christ did on the cross. Because of that moment of being forsaken. Because of that moment that Christ faced. Now there is a congregation that Christ says, my praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. Isn't that what we wait for? Here on this earth, the Bible says that maybe we get 70 years. Maybe if I'm extra strong, I get 80. Maybe I get more. Maybe I get less. But I know that this time here, for me, in this body, has a start and it has an end. And it sits in the middle of a bigger story and an eternal story. And I may feel forsaken in this but I'm never forsaken because the story is so much bigger than that. And that's why he can say, your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nation shall worship before thee for the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among the nations and all they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship what a celebration and true celebration here for God's people is the worship of our God he says they that go down into the dust that's a picture of death shall bow before him that's a picture of there is something enduring even in those as we die and none can keep alive his own soul. This is a picture now of, humanly speaking, there's nothing that Kelvin Todd can do to keep himself alive. I like to try, too, by the way. Because, uh, you know, some people come to me and they say, hey, look, would you like this uh, snack of extra sugar? And I go, you know what? If I'm going to be able to continue to live long, I better watch how much sugar I'm taking in because I might get sick. Or maybe I'm tempted to not get the rest that I need. And I know I need to prioritize my rest physically if I'm going to be able to continue to persist on this earth. There's things I want to do to stay alive. I try to work out to keep my body strong. But none of that, none of that will keep me alive. None can keep alive his own soul. I can't do it. And if I can't do it, that's not supposed to be my effort. That's God's. A seed shall serve him, and it shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. By the way, that phrase there, that he hath done this, could also be interpreted, it is finished. And it's very possible that Christ, in his words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his last phrase, it is finished. Is putting the beginning and the end of Psalm 22 before his people. Let's see that. As we close, I want to give us a picture of, I think, it's at least a picture that has grabbed my imagination. And if it's childish, then 
do what you will with it. But I couldn't help in thinking about this, where Christ is speaking, first of all, of being forsaken, and being forsaken, the sense of being alone by myself. But this psalm starts there and moves into this celebration that is in the midst of a congregation. There's a gathering. He's now not by himself in this experience. He's now not by himself, but he is gathered and surrounded. And that's what we have to feel the need for in our moments of feeling forsaken. I was reminded of The Sound of Music. You guys seen the, seen the movie? Okay, there's a few of us that have seen it. If you haven't seen it, you should watch the movie. It's, it's a really wonderful movie. Um, and The Sound of Music, obviously based in um, the experience of the Von Trapp family in the setting of World War II. There is Fräulein Maria who comes to their house for a time. And as she gets more and more invested into the lives of the family, it seems like she's putting, she's going to change the family for good. But somebody steps into the middle of that and says, okay, let me cut this short, and scares her away from the family. So she runs back to, um, is it the Abbey? And in running back to the Abbey, she's forsaken the family because she realizes, look, I can't change this family. It seems like I'm in a romantic relationship now. It's where it's headed toward with this captain. And that's not really, I'm supposed to be given to God and dedicated to him. But she hasn't taken her vows as a, as a nun yet. And so she runs, scared. She forsakes the family. And the children come in the next day and they're like, what? where is she? Where is she gone? Where's Maria? They feel forsaken. And if you remember the movie, there's this moment where they all are standing there surrounding each other and going, we feel sad. Maria used to make us feel better. And they're trying to remember how they could feel better in that moment. And so one of them says, well, when Maria was here, she would sing. And so they say, let's try it. And they start singing my favorite things. And in true movie fashion, right? They're singing it in this minor key and it's just dragging and it's so sad because things aren't just getting any better at all. Why don't I feel better? That's how the movie kind of goes, right? And so they're, they're all sitting there and they're not really feeling better yet, but they are trying. And then you start to hear a voice join them. And it's the voice of Maria singing with them. These are a few of my favorite things. As her voice steps in to join their voices, to congregate with them. Their experience of being forsaken, their experience of grief and pain is turned around. And that's, I believe, the picture that we are given here, that Christ knows we are sitting in a moment of being forsaken, and why don't I feel better, Lord? How can I feel better? And we try to get to this place of feeling better, but on our own, we're not going to get there. But then the voice of Christ joins our voice, joining with us. I've experienced the same things, and I am with you, and he sings with us. And we are now not alone, but we are gathered with our Father, and we are gathered with the Son, and we are not forsaken. That, I believe, is a picture of what Christ has done and is doing in the midst of grief.